0: episode of the Bureau 42 X-Files retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we discuss X-Files, Season 1, Episode 17, EBE. Original air date, February 18th, 1994. IMDB rating 8.4 out of 10. As mentioned in our last X-Files podcast, this is an episode that provides a pretty big piece of the conspiracy angle. So up to this point, we've known that the government is involved in cover-ups and things somehow. We've seen a little bit of that in the pilot, got another hints in Deep Throat. The big push in that regard was Fallen Angel, which is also the point where we learn that Deep Throat may not have Mulder's best interests in mind, and we're not quite sure which side of the fence he's playing. And this is an episode that really continues in this. So EBE was directed by William Graham. It's his second of three episodes of The X-Files. The first was Space, which didn't come off. Big difference between the two, I think, is the quality of the script and the level of special effects required. It was written by Morgan and Wong, and it also introduces three recurring characters to the series. They're collectively known as the Lone Gunmen. There are three of them, based on some characters that writer Glenn Morgan actually saw at a convention. They had a table laid out with color-coded pages of all the conspiracies, so he pretty much riffed directly off them. And they served a purpose for this episode. There was no guarantee that they are going to come back again. One was sort of validating Mulder they felt they needed to justify these outlandish ideas and say, well, he's not the only one who thinks this. I personally don't think he needed that much validation at this point, because the way the show is written and shot, it's clear to the audience that Mulder's usually right in the X-Files world. He doesn't need additional validation in the eyes of the audience, as far as I'm concerned, but they ran with that anyway. So we end up with three of them. Now, John Fitzgerald Byers is the one who's always dressed in a suit, perfectly immaculate, played by Bruce Harwood. And Richard Ringo Langley is played by Dean Hagland. And the third is Melvin plays Played by Tom Braidwood. Bit of interesting trivia in terms of the casting here. First of all, Dean Hagland, hes in real life part of the Unix user community. This was back in the days when Linux was just barely getting started, so he was still old school Unix, and he had some buddies who helped point him out to different news groups. So this is 1994. So Usenet was up and running. The World Wide Web technically existed—you know, it was functioning. The Mosaic browser was out, but Microsoft had yet to buy Spyglass Entertainment's browser and rebrand it as Internet Explorer. Netscape. I'm not even sure if Netscape was started yet. It may still have just been the Mosaic browser developed by Mark Andrewson. At the very least, it wasn't until about 1995 that Al Gore managed to popularize the commercialization of the internet, which is what brought it eventually into pretty much every home, as opposed to just an isolated few in the more technical and geekier areas of academia. But Dean Hanglin was one of the guys who was on there, and he was one of the first members of the show that was really communicating with the fans and contacting them and keeping track of them just by going online, which was actually pretty nice, especially since these characters would later become a pretty big part of the series and eventually get their own series, which we'll also discuss when we get there. The other interesting note in terms of casting is Tom Braidwood. Now Tom Braidwood is a name we've heard before. If we go back earlier in the season, there's an episode called Shadows, and Tom Braidwood is a name that someone's about to stencil onto a parking stall. He was one of the first assistant directors of the series. Now, the job of the assistant director is usually to fill in the shots and keep things on a schedule by directing the footage that the director doesn't necessarily need to be there for, the stars don't necessarily need to be there for. It's a lot of what are known as establishing shots. So when you see shots taken outside a house before you jump into the house and see the stars, when you see a lot of the environmental shots, when you see some of the secondary characters having conversations about the stars there, these are often directed by the first assistant director, while the director for that movie or series is working with the main cast or the main locations to get that done. The first assistant director doesn't even necessarily work with the guest stars. A lot of times it is just establishing shots. But Tom Braidwood is one of the assistant directors on the series, as was Vladimir Stetsov. And the two of them have their names inspire the fake names that Mulder and Scully use by the end of the episode. It was a bit of an interesting story to how Tom Braidwood actually got cast in this, because up to this point he wasn't working as an actor, he was just working as a director. What was happening one day is that they were on the set trying to figure out how to cast it, and Morgan and Wong were talking to the casting directors about what kind of people they envisioned. And Frohickey has a grand total of two lines in this episode, both in regards to Scully. His first line is she's hot. His second line is she is hot. It's actually a very neat scene setting up the relationship between the five of them and how it all gets set up. But one of the things that Glenn Morgan and James Wong and the casting directors wanted was someone to play Frohickey who would give the audience a specific reaction. Namely, if you're a father and your daughter brought Hickey home your first instinct would be to grab your shotgun. And that's what they're talking about. They need someone like that. Someone who can invoke that reaction. Tom Braidwood was walking by and someone said, like Braidwood. They threw it out as a joke. Apparently it stuck to the point where by the end of the day most of the cast and crew were Tom Bradwood frohickey So yeah, he wasn't an actor, but they put him in. He was on set anyway. He was easy to get, and it was intended to be a one-time usage of the characters, just as a quick scene where he only had the two lines, where he's basically taking pictures of Scully with a telephoto lens, sitting in the office, and that's how he ends up there. Now, in terms of the episode itself, the basic premise is that some sort of UFO was shot down near the borders of Iraq and Turkey. and ended up making it back onto American soil. Mulder and Scully get wind of it, and they start tracking this thing down. As Basically looking to get, they don't know if it's the alien pilot itself, they don't know if it's part of the ship, but they know something from that wreckage Or there's something in the States that people are trying to protect that's associated with alien encounters, not even necessarily the wreckage itself. That's not something that they're completely sure about until later, as they haven't even heard about the wreckage at first. In terms of the feel of the episode it actually is a pretty important episode for the tone of the series and the season. Now, as a lot of people are aware, Hollywood trains its writers to write in what is known as a three-act structure. So, most Hollywood films can be broken into three parts, as can a lot of the TV series. The first act ends with what they call the point of no return. Somewhere typically around uh, about 40 to 45 minutes into a two-hour movie, you get what they call the point of no return. There's a moment where there's no turning back. Whatever path the characters are on, whatever is happening, they are committed and they are going forward. The second act is what they call the reversal, where they realize, oh, something is not the way they thought, maybe now the hunter becomes the hunted, something along those lines. But there's something that makes them question it, but now they're committed, they've got to follow through anyway. There's some reason they can't back down, and then the third act ends with the conclusion. This feels like that reversal, this feels like the turning point in a couple of cases. If we were to look at not just Deep Throat's character arc, but if we look at the first season as a whole, this really feels like the end of Act 2 and the start of Act 3. This is the reversal. So as a viewer, we can look back at the season and say Fallen Angel was the end of Act 1. This is the point where Mulder confronts some of the government conspirators, specifically Section Chief McGrath, whose decision was overturned by Deep Throat. This is where the audience finds out that Deep Throat may not be working in Mulder's best interests. That's our point of no return. We know Mulder's committed, we know he's not going to give up, he's going to keep fighting for the X-Files, and Deep Throat is going to make sure that that work continues, at least in some capacity. As he puts it at the end of that episode, keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. This point is the reversal. This is where Mulder is finally open with Scully to some degree about the fact that he has an informant with deeply influence. This is the point where, with Scully's help, Mulder realizes Deep Throat has lied to them. In fact, he has a photograph forged specifically to throw them off track and to get them out of the way. So it's a turning point in the relationship. Now they realize that they can trust each other, but nobody else. That's even driven home metaphorically when Mulder calls the lone gunman later in the episode, asks Langley to hack them some ID numbers, which is how they get the IDs for Tom Braidwood and Belle Stetsoff and Langley Langley promises to turn off the recording device on the phone call that he always has running. He says it's off. The viewer knows he's running in the background. So at this point, somewhat kind of plays off as building into Langley's character. Some of it just feels like Mulder can't even trust Langley. He can't trust the lone gunman, who, as far as we can tell, seems to be the closest thing he still has to friends, at least since he's found the X-Files. So we've got this established. The second act is ending, and we get a great chase sequence across the country as Mulder and Scully are trying to track down this evidence through Tennessee, eventually catching up with it in Seattle, Washington. They hit a number of of U.S. states in this episode on the way through. And it ends with Mulder confronting Deep Throat in the midst of level six with no concrete evidence and wondering how much of what Deep Throat is saying can he trust. Deep Throat gives him a story about why he's doing what he's doing and why he's helping Mulder, what his history is, but now Mulder understands he needs to question this man's honesty. He needs to question the purpose of it. So it changes the tone of the rest of the season. We've got Mulder and Scully now working in isolation but working together. So Scully may not necessarily believe that that was an alien. She may not necessarily believe that. That it's a UFO, but at this point there is absolutely no doubt in her mind that there are people in the government who are playing Mulder's beliefs and manipulating him to their own ends. So she is now at the point where she believes there's something going on that is bigger than either of them, and there are pawns, and it needs to be uncovered. So again, she doesn't necessarily believe what Mulder believes in terms of what needs to be uncovered, but there's no question that it's there. This is one of the stronger episodes of the first season, and as I said, it has very much the end of the second act feel. So this is the point that turns season Season 1 from Act 1 into Act 2, and as I said, it turns the Mulder-Deepthroat relationship into its third act. So the question is, are they going to get a fourth act? There's a little bit of foreshadowing here in terms of what's coming up in the season, but we'll get to that in about 14 weeks before we do our full Season 1 wrap-up. So join us back here in two more weeks for X-Files Episode 18, Miracle Man. Intro and outro music is by Lastwell created under the Creative Commons License. All other content, copyright 2014, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments and feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes.